country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast with me, Dave McRae, Gemma Purdy, Charlotte Thiadi, and Diet Komsa. We're all here today because we're celebrating our 100th episode. Yay! Yay! <laughs> We've decided to mark the occasion by revisiting some of the major themes that have recurred across our first 99 episodes. And as we're in election mode, we'll discuss today how these themes are likely to impact upon the April polls. Now, without a doubt, the biggest disruption to Indonesian politics since we started the podcast in 2015 was the prosecution and conviction for blasphemy of Jakarta Governor Basuki Cahaya Panama, then known as Ahok, in parallel with the 2017 Jakarta gubernatorial elections. The Ahok cases accounted for four of our ten most listened to podcasts, including our number one episode to date, an overview of the case and its implications for race, religion and democracy with Dr. Nadesia Hosen. Ever since Ahok lost the election on the back of a massive Islamist mobilisation against him, asserting that only a Muslim could lead Muslims, observers have wondered whether this would be the new template for electoral competition in Indonesia. Gemma, how have we seen the Ahok case shape these 2019 polls? Well, Dave, this is a pretty big question, and I think we could talk about this for the entire podcast, but we've got lots of topics to cover. But I'd say the most direct impact, if we want to look at it that way, of the Ahok case on these elections has been obviously the overt politicisation of religion and the involvement of Muslim clerics at all levels of politics in this campaign. The most overt example of this is the decision made by Jokowi and his team around the choice of his running mate for vice president, the conservative cleric Maruf Amin. If we think back to the 2017 gubernatorial elections and the bitterness of that time and campaign, we can understand perhaps why the Jokowi team made the decision that they did. Islam was so prominent in that campaign. The campaign team have indeed succeeded in neutralising perhaps this question of Islam and particularly of Jokowi's Islamicness or how religious he really is by electing Maruf Amin, a cleric, as his running mate. So it's very interesting that the campaign chose to go with Maruf Amin and we've discussed this in our various podcasts since this decision was made. But many would agree that it's actually a shrewd political strategic decision that has until now paid off in that this issue has been sidelined as one that would perhaps have been problematic for Jokowi's team as it was in 2014, as it was in the 2017 elections. So this is the most direct impact. But of course, as a consequence of this decision, what we're waiting to really see is the impact that this alliance with the more conservative side of Islamic politics, what impact it might have on PDIP voters who align perhaps more with the left, who put human rights issues and minority rights as more of a priority for them. Will they think again about voting for PDIP in this coming election? Will they shift their vote somewhere else or will they goal put or choose not to vote for either party? I'm not sure how anyone else sees that, but this is just one aspect of it, I guess. 
Is that how you see it as well, Dirk? Is this something that could cost uh, Jokowi's party PDIP votes because his accommodation of Islamism is at odds with their political values? Well, PDIP is traveling quite well in the polls at the moment. And maybe if we have a chance, we can talk about this so-called coattail effect a bit later. But the question started off with whether the Ahok case in 2017 was a template, right, and how that affected the 2019 presidential election. So while I agree with Gemma that the selection of Maruf Amin was the most obvious direct implication, we should not forget that a lot of observers noted that it was actually not Jokowi's choice. He had actually a different candidate in mind. Yet, in hindsight, it was perhaps the right choice because it does seem that Maruf Amin does not cost Jokowi a lot of support. Jokowi is traveling well in the polls. And even some of the recent media coverage, for example, after the TV debate between the vice presidential candidates, did not exactly tear Maruf Amin to shreds. Some said he performed better than expected. So, because expectations were low. Yeah, they were very low, of course. So even though Jokowi may not have wanted Maruf Amin in the first place, it did eventually probably not turn out to be such a bad move. What I would also say, though, is that given that the question was initially was the 2017 campaign a template, I think we already saw in the 2018 regional elections that it wasn't. The Aho case, after all, did seem to be an exceptional case of mobilization. It was an exceptional target for Islamists. And already in 2018, we saw that replication was difficult. So now it's speculative to say, what if Jokowi had nominated someone else, not an Islamic cleric? Would then the Pravovo camp have chosen the Islamic card to attack him? That's a mute point now. But fact is that as a result, the Islamist element or the, the sectarian element in the campaign is much reduced. And all those fears that we had in 2017 have not really materialized. And of course, the Ahok case was also an important landmark, wasn't it? Not just as a demonstration of this mobilisation of power of political Islam, but it's also shone a spotlight on the limits of freedom of expression in Indonesia. Ahok himself, as we know, was sentenced to two years imprisonment simply for saying people had been deceived using verses of the Quran. And significantly, his has turned out to be just the first in a sequence of cases where political figures and government critics have found themselves prosecuted for their utterings or online posts. There is a legitimate challenge at the core of this for the government. And this has been taken up by some of our guests, including Ignatius Harianto and Dr. Merlina Lim in our podcasts. And this is around the regulations of hoaxes and the so-called freedom to hate on social media. But Dave, has the Indonesian government struck the right balance? What is the state of freedom of expression in the context of the 2019 elections? I don't think this is an area where the government has performed particularly well. I think we have seen freedom of expression compromise with the sorts of cases you mentioned, without particular success, I would say, in preventing the spread of divisive materials and hoaxes, although uh, Charlotte, I'm sure, will have more to say on that. But, I mean, what we have seen is a steady string of government critics facing arrest, some for direct freedom of expression cases, some for other criminal charges, some affiliated directly to the Proboil camp, others not. And I think the most egregious case of this really has been the recent arrest and prosecution of Dr. Robertus Robert, a sociologist from the State University in Jakarta, simply for singing a two decades old protest song against the military 
and criticising the plan of the Jokowi government to accommodate active military officers within civilian ministries. And that fairly mundane protest speech has resulted both in his arrest and also in physical threats against him. So I think that does underline the difficulties that critics of the government can face in the current environment. And we have to keep this in context. This hasn't prevented strident criticism of the government uh, during election season. It has been a campaign, I think, where the two camps, both the candidates and their formal representatives, have engaged in a greater amount of personal attacks than what we've seen in previous elections. It's also an election where you have someone like a Rocky Gurung using really a crass catchphrase to repeatedly criticise the government. So, you know, we do have that criticism out there, it is a contested election. But people making that sort of criticism, I think, are doing it presumably in the back of their mind, the thought that, you know, they could land in prison somewhere down the track as a result of the malleable laws that Indonesia has in this area. And we saw Aziz Anwar Fakhruddin writing recently in the Indonesia at Melbourne blog saying the core problem here is actually the law, that you look at this electronic transactions law, you look at the articles that are in the criminal code, and they're simply too malleable. They create too great a scope for law enforcement to be politicised. And as he said, I think I would agree, unless we have legislative change, freedom of expression is likely to be a problem in each future election. Charlotte, hoax has gone from obscure foreign loan word to a core part of Indonesia's political vocabulary now. What material are we seeing distributed in this election and how effective has it been? Gemma, I think it's really telling that, as you say, hoax has gone from this foreign loan word to a core part of Indonesia's political vocabulary to the extent that it gets mentioned during presidential and vice presidential debates. Jokowi has set up a task force to combat hoax. Lawmakers have talked about having stronger laws to protect Indonesia and Indonesian voters from hoaxes because, as they've just said, the problem is in the laws itself. But If we look at the range of issues that have been circulating on social media that are hoaxes, we see a a wide variety. Obviously, during the entire Ahok saga, we saw hoaxes relating to issues with blasphemy against Islam and also about Chinese involvement in the Jokowi administration and also as a force that backs Ahok. This was quite predictable for the time because part of the uh, main narratives of the anti-Ahok demonstrations were just that you know, that Ahok was blasphemous against Islam. This is an attack not just for Indonesian Muslims, but also Muslims around the world. The fact that Ahok himself is ethnic Chinese and Christian only made the matters worse. And also at that time, Jokowi was under attack until now from time to time about over-closeness to China and over-reliance on Chinese foreign investment. At that time, we saw hoax news about you know, 10 million Chinese migrants coming to Indonesia under Jokowi and Jokowi being lax about allowing Chinese uh, laborers to take up uh, low-skilled jobs uh, from Indonesians, things like that. But over time, the themes of hoaxes uh, that circulate have also changed. We don't see as much anti-Chinese stuff on social media anymore these days because it's not topical anymore. We do see still a lot of hoaxes to do with Islam, attacks against Islam, calling for jihad, 
blood, etc. And the numbers, according to a number of research agencies of hoaxes leading up to the presidential and legislative elections have predictably gone up. But the issues are very wide and varied, and some of them, to be honest, are quite comical. You know, for instance, there was a hoax recently alleging that uh, the Jokowi government was so desperate for money and also for campaign funds that Sri Mulyani was seriously considering selling off Bali to foreign investors uh, as a way to generate income. Uh, we also see scaremongering in terms of hoaxes about how Huawei and Oppo phones in Indonesia are recording tools by China in order to listen to Indonesian conversations and spread communist ideology. So you see the, you know, the dominant usual suspect themes such as anti-communism, blasphemy against Islam, call for jihad, and also anti-Chinese sentiments on hoaxes. And this reflects the general mood among Indonesian voters. And the question that we need to ask is, how is the government going to deal with this? Part of some of the ways that they've done so far, which has been not that successful, they've been trying to counter hoaxes by starting anti-hoax campaigns. They even have a YouTube channel now, like a variety show debunking hoaxes. This hasn't been as popular as they would like. And also you have ministers like Wiranto threatening that not only can hoax spreaders get caught and be put in jail using the information and electronic transactions law, but also even anti-terror laws. So it's a serious issue and one that the Indonesian government doesn't really know how to deal with yet. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's my impression that hoaxes are relatively rarely used to spread rumors about corruption, which you might think could be um, a very useful weapon to discredit someone, right? Because if we look back at the last four years, corruption was one of the other big themes, which we've also covered here in the Talking Indonesia podcast. There was the infamous case with Jokowi's plan to appoint Budi Gunawa, an attainted police officer, to make him national police chief. And of course, he had to sort of withdraw from that idea because it caused a political firestorm. Then later on, we had the case of former Gorka chairman Setia Novanto, who many people had regarded as untouchable for a long time because he was often alleged to have been involved, um, was never taken down, but now he is eventually in jail. Most recently, the arrest of the PPP chairman Roma Huamuzi. So corruption is a continuous theme, but in this election campaign, we have not really seen it as particularly prominent. Where it did come up was in the discussions and reviews of the first presidential debate when corruption was meant to be a theme. And many people expected Prabowo to use the attack against one of the KPK investigators in 2017 as an attacking point to challenge Jokowi's track record on corruption. So Gemma, I think it was you who interviewed Daisy Simanjuntak shortly mm -hmm. after that attack and asked her about the implications of that. Now, as we're approaching the election, how do you see corruption as an issue in the election campaign? Yes, I spoke with Daisy last year in the wake of that attack on Novel Baswedan. As we know, acid was thrown in his face as he walked along the street in Jakarta. What is interesting, Dirk, and you mentioned that perhaps this could have come up in the first debate. The fact is that this investigation has stalled the police investigation into this, so much so that in recent days, an NGO has been petitioning the government to establish an independent fact-finding team to investigate the attacks on Novell. They think that the police are actively obstructing the process in this case. So what do we get from that? We, I guess we can see from that that corruption for this government 
at some levels is important, perhaps, in you know the way that the government is presenting itself, and Jokowi always has, is very much an anti-corruption president, and he has supported the Kapeka to an extent, but some things still difficult, and that includes the relationship between the police and the Kapeka and Jokowi, and perhaps this is an example of him not quite being able to negotiate that at this stage. In the debate that you mentioned, both sides made what could be expected to be their positions on anti-corruption. Jokowi pointed to his support for the Kapeka. And the other thing that should be noted is that even though the Kapeka has faced these assaults, attacks on it, on its very people, it has not stopped them doing their business. And you mentioned the arrest this past week of the PPP chairman. So it has not put them off their work and that has continued. But in terms of the campaign, Prabol's uh, spoken about the need to increase the wages for bureaucrats as a you know kind of a practical solution to this so that bureaucrats won't be so susceptible to bribery and the these kinds of, you know, small ideas have been circulating in the context of a general anti-corruption position. But it doesn't appear that it is a priority for voters as they're heading to the ballot box. I think, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but it's not at the forefront of the issues that are probably motivating voters as, as far as I can see it. Some political parties are running with corruption as a more prominent platform for them, including the PSI, so the Indonesian Solidarity Party, the new party of younger, mostly younger candidates. And for them, this issue is an important one and they believe that young voters and and poorer voters do care about it. So we'll see how that's borne out. I mean, to me, this arrest by the Anti-Corruption Commission, the KPK, of the chairperson of the United Development Party, PPP, is an interesting one because you know, we saw the same thing happen ahead of the 2014 polls uh, when at that time PPP were in the Prabowo coalition uh, rather than the Jokowi coalition as they are now. And it became a political liability for Prabowo. You had Yusuf Kala in one of the debates from memory saying, well, look at the two camps, uh, which side are the thieves on? Because you did have a number of the party chairpersons from the Prabowo camp at the time arrested for corruption. I mean, how do we see this arrest playing out? Is it actually a positive for Jokowi because his camp can use it to say, look, we're acting against anyone who's corrupt, even if they're in our own camp? Or does it hurt his reputation the way it did in 2014 for the Prabowo side? Well, you could spin this thought further. You could say that Jokowi asked the Kapika to arrest someone from his camp to show that, you know, just sacrifice someone who is in my coalition, who's the weakest spot, who will, you know, damage me the, the least, but yet we can show that we are also going after people who are supporting me. Mm, interesting. <laughs> it honest. is definitely how they're spinning it, right? I mentioned the PSI and Rian Ernest, who was a guest on our podcast last year, has been one of them who's been out in front of this issue and has, in, in fact, said exactly what Dave said, which is this is an example of Jokowi not protecting anyone when it comes to corruption and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Charlotte, sorry, yeah. you wanted to say something. So issues that are definitely important for voters, and this is something that both camps running in the next election have talked about constantly uh, in their debates. They talked about healthcare, they talk about the economy, our social and economic policies, which is also a recurring theme in our podcast, ranging from the fascinating debate between professors Hasbula Tabrani and Laksono Trisnantoro over the performance of Indonesia's universal healthcare scheme, JKN, to Associate Professor Jamie Davidson from NUS on infrastructure, 
and most recently Dr. Lana Sulistianingsi on the key economic issues for voters. On the flip side, of course, we've also featured Professor Ed Aspinall on widespread vote buying and Dr. Ward Berenshaw on patronage democracy more broadly. So how can we reconcile these two themes? We have social and economic policy issues on the one hand, clearly very important for voters. And on the other hand, we also have these issues of widespread vote buying and patronage democracy that we've talked about a number of times during our podcast. So to what extent does programmatic politics matter to the outcome of the election? Dirk, can I start with you on that question? Well, I think we need to distinguish between the presidential election and the parliamentary election. I reckon the parliamentary election is suffering a bit from a lack of attention in this whole campaign, which is one of the side effects of having the presidential election and the parliamentary election on the same day for the first time. So if we talk about programmatic politics versus vote-buying patronage and pragmatism, I think in the parliamentary election, vote-buying will still be as rampant as it was in 2014 because I don't see that anything has changed in the electoral system. We still have the same kind of open list proportional representation system in place, which puts candidates at the forefront of the campaign rather than the political parties. And candidates often regard vote buying or distribution of patronage as the best way of distinguishing themselves from other candidates in their own party, but also in the other parties. At the same time, even if we did go up to the next level, the parties themselves also don't have any meaningful programs themselves. Uh, So for the parliamentary election, I would think that the whole issue of patronage democracy, as we discussed in the podcast here before, um, is still as prevalent as before. It's slightly different, though, in the presidential election, I would argue. Of course, I'm not claiming that Jokowi or Prabowo have particularly elaborate or sophisticated programs, yet they are certainly in greater need to respond to survey results, for example, that say economic issues, social health issues, etc., are important to voters. And so they have to have at least some broadly formulated responses to that. And I think Jokowi has the advantage of incumbency there because he can claim that he has had some success with the programs that he put into practice in the last five years, be that in terms of health and education policy, but also, of course, with his infrastructure. Right, So he can rightly point to that as achievements, whereas Prabowo would need to find some sort of angle to find weaknesses in this. And I mean, there are some. The economy hasn't quite performed as well as Jokowi had predicted or had promised at the start of his campaign. But because the broad macroeconomic indicators are reasonably well, especially inflation is low, that gives Prabowo, I think, very little material to attack Jokowi on that front. And so he finds it a bit difficult to make ground on the basis of programmatic policies. But maybe Dave or Gemma? No, I mean, I see it largely the way that you've outlined there. And I'll join the general trend that you've highlighted by largely ignoring the parliamentary elections in my response. Um, I think in the presidential election in particular, we've seen the Electoral Commission, the KPU, really struggle strongly to wrench the focus of the campaign back to programmatic issue. We see each debate have a focus on particular themes of programmatic policy and quite a stilted format that limits the interaction between the two candidates until later in the the debate, uh, uh, kind of forcing the two camps to make general statements of programmatic policy and the sorts of criticisms of track record or programs that you're outlining there. For me, the interesting thing, though, has been that I guess the most memorable aspect of these debates has not been a contest of ideas. Uh, It's more, for me, been the way that 
personal attacks have been used to attack the credibility of the promises that each camp would make. Not that the programs they're outlining are flawed, but that we just can't trust them to do it. And a couple of examples were the most notable certainly would be Jokowi highlighting the amount of land that Prabowo controlled in the second debate and saying, how can we trust this man on land reform? With the interesting twist that followed of his vice president, Yusuf Kala, saying, well, I, I was the one who granted that land to him in the first place. Um, We also saw that in the first debate on the issue of gender, where Jokowi said, how can you be talking about gender equality when there are no women in leadership positions in your party? So yes, I think programmatic politics is more of a feature in the presidential campaign. But yeah, the interesting thing to me is the contest of ideas is attacking the credibility of the candidates rather than really getting into the policies that they're offering. Yeah, you mentioned that Jokowi brought up the issue of female candidates in the Prabovo camp, which is a good segue to one of the other big issues that we've had in the podcast here over the year, which are gender issues, which probably haven't featured as prominently in the campaign as they have on our podcast here over the years. We've had several episodes on various gender issues. We've had Yuni Yanti, Chuzaifa discussing violence against women. We've had Intan Paramadita on women, gender and activism, Devi Asmarani on online feminism, and most recently we also had Ella Priatini, who was talking about the representation of female candidates in the legislative election. Yet, as we said, the main focus in this campaign is on the presidential election, and there, of course, we have two men um, slugging it out against each other once again. So, Charlotte, in your view, what role does gender play in this campaign, and why are women's groups perhaps finding it difficult to put gender issues more squarely on the agenda? Well, to be honest, I'm not entirely optimistic that gender issues will prominently feature at all uh, during this election and you know, in the aftermath of the election as well, if we do see a good proportion of women candidates this time around, but also elected into seats. So far, the way that political parties have tried to address gender issues or at least portray that they are gender or female friendly in their campaigns is by including a particular proportion of women as their political candidates, right? Um, Indonesia is one of the many countries that use an electoral quota to try to reduce imbalance in in the DPR or the House of Representatives. So, for instance, political parties must ensure that at least 30% of their candidates in each constituency are women. And, you know, since 2004, we've seen the proportion of candidates increase. And in next month's legislative election, around 40% of the candidates are women. This is good. But in terms of the proportion of seats won by women, parliamentarians, according to data by Ella Pekatini, a featured guest in, in our podcast, it has grown only haltingly from 11% to 2014 to 18% in 2019 before falling back to 17% in 2014. So the representation itself is very small. Uh, But that's only part of the problem, I think. So in terms of the elected female candidates into the DPR itself, political parties generally don't have a system in place to uh, prepare female candidates or to actually encourage them to take up issues to do with uh, feminism or gender issues at all. Because the focus has been on the proportion of female candidates during elections, it has become a last minute scramble for each party to find a female candidate, any female candidate to fill in positions within um, electorates. So this is a problem. So when women do campaign as candidates and when they do get elected, they 
don't really have a uh, a platform, particularly a feminist platform, that they're actually championing. For instance, if we're talking about important gender issues in in Indonesia, one topic that women's groups often talk about, uh, and it's been on the news a lot uh, recently, particularly after the execution of an Indonesian foreign domestic worker last year in Saudi Arabia, is the plight of Indonesia's millions of female foreign domestic workers, something that I spoke about with Dr. Jafar Surya Mangolo a few weeks ago. This is an issue that would sometimes be talked about, but not really. And none of the female uh, DPR members have really taken up an important issue like this seriously in parliament. And the issue of female representation, even though there are mechanisms in terms of the law to try to uh, include more women, there are not a lot of things being done by female parliamentarians to challenge the inherently patriarchal system of leadership within political parties, like you mentioned before, or to ensure that female issues have some priority during House discussion sessions or during decision making. So to be honest, I am not very optimistic for uh, gender issues getting a run in the upcoming election and beyond. And I think to add to that, Charlotte, I mean, I I absolutely agree, Charlotte, with you on that assessment. And we could also point to the ways in which women have actually participated in the campaign, even though gendered issues haven't been so prominent. But there has been a, a push to kind of get out the women vote. Sunday, the vice presidential running mate of Prabhu has led this push of emak emak. So your middle class, lower middle class women have been active in groups campaigning for the opposition, for the Gurindra party. And Jokowi has a similar team of middle class women, what he calls them Ibu Bangsa. Now, what's interesting about these two groups is, yes, they come from middle class, slightly different groups, perhaps one lower, one uh, higher. But the tropes that they are using and that the Jokowi camp and the Prabowo camp are using to talk about these women and to talk about the policies and issues that are important to them. Hark back to the New Order period. We really see here that Indonesia hasn't really moved on in terms of how it thinks about women as political agents or in society as contributors to the nation. We still hear this narrative of women as wives and mothers as the moral protector of the nation. So just the very term Ibubangsa gives you an idea of that. So in the current campaign, if you really want to pull out the kinds of issues that the two sides have you know, pointed to as being kind of women's issues or where you see Sunday perhaps going down to the market and speaking with the amak amak about what is important to them. We're really talking about economic issues, about household income, welfare support. Charlotte mentioned healthcare and education, microcredit, those kinds of issues. Those are the ones that this campaign has honed in on. Not issues about the rights of a woman to have control over her body. Most prominent here is the fact that there's currently a bill up for vote, the sexual violence bill, which has faced opposition from religious conservatives, um, but in fact has been supported by some elements uh, of the political parties. For example, Gurindra has backed this bill, but its coalition partner PKS has not. So there's a lot of tension here when it comes to what you said, Charlotte, um, perhaps what we would think of as being more feminist issues in, you know, in politics at the moment. And they really haven't got a run in the campaign. And perhaps that's because there is this tension, which is within coalitions as much as it is in the broader society. So I, what we can say about gender issues is that Indonesia remains behind in how it should be facing the issues of women's rights and uh, gender in general. And they really haven't got a run in this campaign. But we've had great guests 
guests on our podcast in the last few years who counter that, who demonstrate that actually there's this movement within the country, regardless of you know what we're talking about here in terms of a political campaign, but a great movement to empower women and to speak out on feminist issues. And Dirk mentioned that we spoke with <laughs> Debbie about online feminism and how they're using social media in order to have these debates. Yeah, they're not occurring, you know, on the in the big presidential debates. They're not occurring in the uh, political campaigns, but they're happening anyway. So that that's the contrast here. And we talked about some of the tensions in Indonesia and paradoxes, and I think that's another one of them. Well, it's it's very interesting actually. So I completely agree with your assessment before Gemma about how the uh, the main political candidates have been talking about women and also about gender issues and how the landscape and and voters themselves, social media activists have uh, been talking about or alluding to gender, women, and sexuality. One of the things that have been fascinating to see is the prominence of this uh, Nurhadi Aldo campaign. Uh, it's a fake campaign running on social media. And it's very popular among the young millennial voters in particular. A group of disgruntled voters, uh, I would say young disgruntled voters, decided to cut through all the campaign narratives and uh, to make fun of the stale campaign slogans that political candidates often put forward and come up with their own political candidates in the form of Nur Hadi as president and Aldo as vice president. And they come up with witty campaign slogans such as, we promise nothing or we promise that at least we won't be any more corrupt than any of our ministers or, or something like that. And, and they're funny. But very, very soon after that, the narrative of this fake popular campaign on social media takes quite a sexist turn. The Nuhadi Aldo uh, campaign is shortened to Dildo for Indonesia. So feminist activists and also women in general have been complaining that this funny, supposedly light-hearted social media campaign actually reflects the sexist and patriarchal undertones of uh, mainstream politics at the moment. And if we can see this among the younger generation, that's not a good sign in terms of sexist and patriarchal attitudes in Indonesian politics more generally. Yeah, that campaign has been enthralling and uh, those of us who've had a look at it are pretty appalled by a lot of its content. If we could spruik a little bit here for an article that was translated and appeared in Inside Indonesia on this very topic, go ahead and have a look. But Charlotte, this current government do have some prominent women right, leaders, uh, including um, Sri Mulyani, Minister for Finance, who many of the feminists I've spoken to uh, say is their poster girl, which is great. And of course, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Retno Masudi, is another prominent member of Jokowi's government. So this can turn us now to maybe a question about Indonesia's place in the world, which has been something that we have spoken about a lot on the podcast also. We've had guests like Dr. Evi Fitriani, who provided an early review of Jokowi's foreign policy. Dr. Makmur Kaliat, who outlined the challenge the South China Sea posed to Indonesia. And former Deputy Foreign Minister Dr. Dino Pati Jalal analysed Indonesia's relations with its key security partner, the US. We've also had Dr. Arif Havas Ugroseno on the progress of the Global Maritime Fulcrum and Indonesia's aspirations to transform itself into a maritime power. Dave, we wouldn't normally think of foreign policy as a key election issue. Will it matter in April? 
Would a Prabowo victory reshape Indonesia's relations with its region and the broader international community? Well, um, to deal with the first question of the role of foreign policy in this campaign, it's slightly tricky timing to ask the question with the presidential debate on that very question happening this weekend. But broadly, I would say no. Obviously, it's been an area of a lot of activity during the Jokowi government. You mentioned this global maritime fulcrum, which has been turned into a national oceans policy. There's been really a strong discourse of this government positioning itself as a stronger defender of Indonesia's rights. They've criticised their predecessors, saying Yudhiyono's government didn't do enough in this regard. But when you come to an election, it's really not an area where you're going to see an incumbent lose votes unless they transgress just a few key issues in Indonesian foreign policy. One would be if they were seen as weak on the Palestinian cause and the slated move by Australia of its embassy to Jerusalem provided an opportunity for the Jokowi government to demonstrate its credentials there. Um, Another would be if they demonstrated weakness in defending the seas around the Natuna Islands uh, from a challenge, say, from China or Vietnam in the South China Sea. Uh, Again, this has been a signature area where Jokowi has involved himself personally in Indonesian foreign policy, so not a vulnerability. Probably the last one would be the issue of excessive closeness to China. And this has been something that the government has faced hoaxes on throughout its period, has faced uh, more legitimate criticism and attacks, as we have seen, I think, a greater prioritisation of Chinese investment, greater emphasis on exploring ties with China during this administration, keeping in mind, of course, that the United States is such a large security partner counterbalancing that emphasis. Um, But to me, again, this really hasn't become a major theme during this campaign, at least not yet, in the way that we might have guessed, given the use of hoaxes in the first couple of years of the administration. And, And so, you know, at this point, I really don't see foreign policy shaping the vote. And we might say maybe this will change. On the other hand, we wind back five years to the same debate. Um, Jokowi demonstrated anything but a detailed knowledge of the foreign policy issues that that Indonesia faced at the time, and it really had no impact on his standing in the poll. So as someone who delves deeply into foreign policy, I'd love to say this was going to be crucial to the election outcome, but I really don't see it playing out that way at the moment. I completely agree with Dave. Sorry, Dave. I completely agree with you, Dave. I think historically the Indonesian voters haven't really cared all that much about foreign policy, apart from it has something to do with nationalistic pride or if the political candidates make it like a a national security issue or a sovereignty issue or a pride issue, like, you know, in the South China Sea case where there's an actual fear of transgression of Indonesian borders, uh, particularly if the country transgressing is a country like China, historically problematic in Indonesia. But apart from that, not really. And the candidates know not to make a big deal out of this as well. And I think, Dave, perhaps uh, because of not much knowledge as well among the candidates about uh, specific issues to do with security and foreign relations for Indonesia. But one thing I think that Prabowo has picked up from time to time, like you mentioned before, is Indonesia's and particularly the Jokowi government's alleged over-reliance on foreign investment and also so particularly Chinese foreign investment
government. And uh, in the past, he has made comments about wanting to nationalize more of Indonesia's natural resources and Indonesia's industries and, you know, uh, avoiding over-reliance on uh, foreign economic partners. And I know that this is something that our guests have talked about, uh, Dr. Siwage Darmanagara, when he was talking about Chinese investments in Indonesia, is something that foreign investors are worried about. Would a probable victory end up being an Indonesia that is much less friendly to foreign investors? Jokowi is the president who says that Indonesia is open for business. Would Prabowo close off that opportunity? I think, to be honest, this is more just a campaign jargon from Prabowo's point of view. Because, say, for instance, if we look at what his running mate, Sandiaga Uno, is saying about foreign investments, it's almost contradictory to what Prabowo is saying, particularly his economic nationalist jargon. So I think in terms of foreign policy and foreign investments and foreign involvement, both candidates know that it's not so important for the Indonesian public, but they also know when to whip out this foreign involvement card during campaigning. But ultimately, even Prabowo has to admit that Indonesia will still need substantial foreign investment for the future, but he knows what to say in order to get votes from the right people. In fact, relating it back to issues about hoax and social media, recently Prabowo himself has been accused by the Jokowi camp of involving foreign agents to influence social media presence in Indonesia and also potentially to influence votes, something that their camp has denied. So foreign policy, not so important, but can be whipped out if it attracts the right kind of responses from voters, I think. Yeah, interesting that you say that Sandiaga Uno has been almost contradictory in his statements uh, to his boss, so to speak, here yeah, to Prabowo Subianto. Maybe we can come back to these statements in five years' time when Sandy will run for president himself, uh, which many <laughs> observers regard as quite likely. But for now, I think that's all we've got time for in our review of the first 100 episodes of our podcast. I think we've touched upon most of the important issues that we've had here. And I think that's it for our episode today. We'd love to hear from you and for you to drop us a line on social media to let us know what your favorite episodes have been or what you'd like to see in the next 100 episodes of Talking Indonesia. And Talking Indonesia will, of course, be back next Thursday for April uh, with me as the episode host. Until then, remember, you can listen to our entire archive of 100 episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you've joined us along our 100-episode journey to date. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye Bye for for now. now.